Welcome back to Picked Voices, our podcast series featuring interviews with notable members of the broader Picked community. Today, we will be talking about eating out. As we're all aware by now, culinary establishments like restaurants, bars, and cafes are among the hardest hit businesses in our pandemic days. But there is much more at stake when eating out than just the fate of an industry. Eating out is about our cultural identity, it is about our patterns of socialization. And it is about vital elements of culture, such as the very concept of hospitality. Where, how, and with whom we eat out are choices at once personal and intimate, while at the same time producing a butterfly effect that ripples across our entire culture and even the world at large. My name is David Selim Sayers, and my guest today is culinary critic, writer, and broadcaster William Sitwell, whose latest book, The Restaurant, A History of Eating Out, takes readers on a culinary journey all the way from ancient Rome to Instagram. William, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you very much. I'm very excited and happy to talk to you. Thank you, William. So um, let me, without further ado, let me just lead uh, straight into my first question to you. So, uh, and that question concerns the, the connection between eating out and socializing, because throughout your book, you insist that eating out is as much about so socialization as it is about the food itself. This socialization can take many different forms, for example, political gatherings, and many states throughout history have in fact attempted to ban certain culinary establishments to suppress opposition. Uh, the, the socialization can also transcend social boundaries, such as in pubs where you describe commoners and the highborn rubbing shoulders, and it can uh, uh, manifest such boundaries. For instance, in contemporary high-end restaurants with prohibit prohibitive prices and exclusive clienteles. Uh, the socialization can even happen via social media, with influencers patronizing restaurants primarily to share photos of the dishes. And with the new phenomenon of social distancing, the very link between cuisine and socialization seems to be in jeopardy. So William, in your opinion, is socialization an essential aspect of, of cuisine or can we imagine a lively and creative cuisine without the, uh, without the component of socialization? Well, there's a lot of uh, things to get our head around there. <laughs> it's a very excellent question uh, covering quite a lot of ground. Um, I think what's interesting, one of, the, one of the key things I'd say is that, uh, you know, if you asked someone, why do you eat out? Most people would probably, the knee-jerk reaction would be, well, because I'm hungry. And traditionally that's what hospitality has existed to serve hospitality which was enshrined more or less in law and had a god that oversaw it um, in the sort of ancient world in, in roman empire ancient greece um, was something that was expected that travelers would get for free it, hospitality was stretched across the roman empire as an administrative thing, uh, in the same way that it's taxes, language, and laws stretched. And a traveler across an empire, and it was pretty similar within the Ottoman Empire, could again expect hospitality to be given. And that hospitality was sating a very f basic need, which was the need for food, the need for sustenance in order to be able to survive. But over time, what we see, of course, is that the phenomenon of eating out 
that stems from uh, what I call eating away. In other words, people having to travel for whatever reason, probably for work, have to eat away from their village, their home by necessity. Once that eating away becomes established and a building is built in order to serve it, it becomes eating out. And as eating out solidifies itself within our within the world's various cultures and as it becomes more sophisticated you at the other end of the spectrum of need where eating out begins you get not even greed you get people eating out because they want to be seen so when eating out becomes part of a, a sort of expression of yourself in terms of fashion and you 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 know you talk about my history going from ancient history to Instagram. Instagram is a lot is 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 a you know the selfie culture about look at look at me look look at where I am look at what I'm doing look at where, what I'm eating out says about me. It's not about sating hunger. So you get to this extraordinary position where businesses are built, attracting people to go and eat in places where it's not about the food necessarily. And then also you've got I think the very real um approach that the food critic adrian gill the late great adrian gill of the sunday times talked about which was that if if the food was the only thing that you'd be interested in when you're eating out then you're going to the wrong places or you're with the wrong people so it's a very very complicated um subject to to grapple with because while you know we have a need to eat we also have a need to uh be joined in that spirit of hospitality with friends and so food then becomes a part of that socialization you know if if you go out and you've had a great time but all you talk about is the food i suggest you probably haven't had such a great time which is why the greatest chefs the greatest restaurateurs of all time are not just feeders they have a philosophy they are interior designers they're businessmen they're managers and as i say in the book it helps if they can cook so once you start to look at it like that, you realize that eating out is a very, very complicated um, uh, institution. And when you're then stopped from doing it, um, as we have been recently, it's not just about the dangers to a huge swathe of jobs, as we're seeing right now in the UK, some three million people jeopardized. Um, some three million jobs jeopardized because of a government's insistence at the moment as we speak to adhere to a two meter rule of social distancing so eating out then becomes a cornerstone not just of culture but of economy where nine million people's jobs in the entirety of the united kingdom for example are employed in that business so eating out goes from this small humble desire to be fed to a cornerstone of culture a key part of the economy and a key badge of our own character and the way that we wish people to see us. Yeah, I mean, uh, William, here you've really touched upon a, a range of subjects, uh, very, very interesting subjects that I would like to explore with you in a little bit more depth. And maybe the first part, uh, the first place for me to start that exploration would be with the question of economy that you touched upon. Because, I mean, when we talk about the, the, the sort of gastronomical economy or the cuisine economy, 
we're not just obviously talking about the the economy of a of a country, but we're, we're we're actually talking about a globalized industry. We're talking about a globalized economy, and uh, uh, the uh, what you said about eating out becoming such a cornerstone of culture and such a cornerstone of the economy um, contrasts with uh, your description, for example, of post-war Britain, where you describe in your book you know, how food was rationed. Ingredients were local. Uh, eating out was, in fact, frowned upon, as was travel, and uh, immigration was at a low point. Uh, and when you describe the results of that, like the resulting cuisine in such a situation, you uh, you, you give the impression of a bland, uh, somewhat unimaginative and provincialized cuisine, mostly deprived, in fact, of global influences and ingredients. But I mean, uh, the picture is not so simple, right? Because on the other hand. It seems to me that the food that was available during those years was, in fact, nutritionally balanced, locally and seasonally sourced, and ethically and environmentally sustainable. So, yeah. uh, today, you know, as, as, as you described, the coronavirus lockdown bringing the culinary industry to a standstill and putting all those jobs in jeopardy, it seems to me uh, we've come full circle in a way to face the same dilemma as was maybe faced in those post-war years, uh, in that do we want to, do, do we want to return um, uh, to the local? I mean, this could be a possibility to restart a restaurant industry based on a return to the local, but maybe at the cost of diversity and variety, or do we want, in fact, to insist on a return to the pre-coronavirus situation, the global and industrial, with its connotations, with its uh, sometimes negative connotations of human environmental exploitation? Or do you think that maybe in the aftermath of the coronavirus, there will be some unexpected way to have our cake, as it were, and eat it too, in that can we find a way to move towards a cuisine and move towards an industry that is at the same time responsible, but also, uh, uh, you know, uh, firstly, open to global influences, and secondly, economically uh, interesting. Well, the first thing I'd say that in, you know, in those bleak post-war years, um, the, the British, you know, Britain was, um, I suppose, in order to be able to, by, by dint of the need to survive, was insular and inward looking because it was very important during the war and in the, the years that immediately preceded it that rationing uh, was maintained because the supply chains were going to take some time to get up and running. So the kind of cultural acceptance of rationing was a very important thing because if people were unhappy with the situation they faced, then, you know, you would have seen people revolting against it and rebelling against it. So they, the insular situation that we saw in those fairly difficult years after the war, I think, helped to create a stabilised society. But of course, then what you have over the coming years is you see the growth of globalisation, um, fueled by um, the ability to travel as travel is democratized and as supply chains and technology enables people to communicate um, very quickly across the world, which means that you get to a position that we were at the beginning of this year, where um, decades of, of immigration and of travel mean that culturally um, we are exposed to 
all the upsides of globalization, which is we have our palate broadened and we're able to eat food from all across the world. So you could say that um, the cat is out of the bag in terms of our exposure to all these foreign influences and the joys that come with that. So if, as you say, we then find ourselves back full circle to a situation where we're focused on the local, um, buy again necessity, because, um, I mean, actually supply chains haven't been affected, but there has been a feeling of thinking about local cuisine, people not going to their supermarkets as much, even now because there are queues, using box schemes, organic vegetables, using your farmer's markets. But actually, um, whilst in some ways we may have come circle in terms of the focus on the local, because of our exposure to the global, there are still, uh, you know, the most extraordinary array of ingredients. So whatever we're cooking now, it is a lot more exciting than it was in the 1950s. So we've already exposed our palates to that, that level of excitement. So I don't think there'll be any going back. Um, the, the, negative, the negative consequences, of course, of COVID are this inability to rub shoulder to shoulder, to meet strangers, to meet friends, to enable great chefs who are fantastic arbiters of the cuisines that they represent, either because they're immigrants or because they've taught themselves how to cook those foods because they love them, they've traveled to those places. Um, and I think it's a big shame if a lot of these restaurants cannot operate because of COVID restrictions. It does mean, I think, that you know, culturally, I think that is a that is a shame because we become, on our focus becomes more narrow if we're cooking more at home. It's about our own abilities to cook rather than being able to enjoy the fruits of other people's labors. Yes. Um, uh, so, 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 but, but I think in terms of, uh, I mean, what you were saying in terms of the, like the supply chains not being really significantly interrupted and, uh, uh, also, uh, uh, the ability to, to rub shoulders. I mean, when you were saying that I was thinking over here in Paris, now that the lockdown is lifted and cafes and restaurants have been given like the limited, uh, 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 freedom to, to welcome guests again, at least on the, on the sidewalks where they're, where they're allowed to put their tables. And now we, uh, I mean, when I walk past those cafes and restaurants that are now mostly on the streets, I mean, people are on the streets, but people are uh, decidedly and uh, 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 very aggressively rubbing shoulders, as it were. So uh, I, I, I... Oh, are they? That's yes, interesting. Yes, so you're are. seeing yeah, you're yeah. seeing a, a rebellion on a small level. Oh, absolutely. And I think it's something that is sort of very, like the cafe culture, the sort of communal culture of dining out and eating out and uh, uh, having a coffee in the afternoon. That is something so ingrained in the Parisian culture that I think it's difficult for people to imagine uh, this city without these kinds of socializations that are, that are occasioned uh, by coming together uh, for food or, or for a simple, for just, just to have a sip of something to drink. But so, so you don't really anticipate any kind of major reshuffle in the way that globally food is supplied and sourced? Well, um, I don't because these supply lines and these businesses exist. Of course, where they will be affected is if the, the need for imports diminishes. So if because of government restrictions, huge swathes of the restaurant business go out of business, um, go bust, and therefore there isn't a need for specific ingredients, 
then those ingredients won't come in and then they won't then be wide, widely available because the source of those ingredients themselves might find themselves going out of business. Absolutely. Um, so, you, you know, only time will tell. It depends on what, what the various governments do and it depends on whether people adhere to those restrictions. And actually, if people vote by their feet, you know, and I know this isn't particularly specifically relevant to our conversation, but while we're talking about it, you know, if thousands can gather and protest for whatever reason, um, it's very hard to try and uh, insist that you can't go to the pub in a group of six of you. So I think that I don't think that um, the you know, European nations will tolerate being told that they, they can't express themselves in, yeah, in, think... in that way. So I think that um, I don't think that people will accept it. So as I say, globalization exists. There's many, many good things about it. So I don't see that ultimately as being affected. And as I say, supermarkets are very, very sophisticated. The logistical chains are in very good health. Shops have not run out of food. So I don't see um, I don't see that as being a long term trend. Yes, you know, no, in terms of globalization being, you know, being diminished. Yes, uh, I mean, I, I agree with you. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, in fact, uh, as, as, as concerns people voting with their feet, I think you're absolutely right. We're seeing uh, uh, very well right now that as a matter of fact, um, if you want to, I mean, uh, governments can hardly impose something if there is not enough consensus from the bottom to, to, sort, of, uh, to sort of support that decision uh, and to go along with that decision from the top that has become uh, abundantly clear in the days uh, 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 and weeks that we've just experienced. Um, regarding, I mean, uh, uh, what you were saying earlier about um, all the different foreign ingredients, all the different sort of cultural influences coming to bear upon uh, the cuisine that is at our disposal, I wanted to dig a little bit further into that because uh, when we look at the place of cuisine within culture, also when I look at it as a scholar of culture, uh, I see that cuisine is... Uh, on the one hand, cuisine is one of the most porous aspects of culture because it exudes and absorbs influences to and from around the world. But at the same time, cuisine is one of the most tenacious aspects of culture and it can survive even when its originating communities cease to exist. Uh, one example is the Ottoman Empire, to which you also devote a chapter in your book. There is a very, very interesting film, a 2003 film, uh, uh, filmed in Greece, called Politiki Cuisina by Tassos Boumetis and translated into English as A Touch of Spice. And here, uh, uh, Ottoman cuisine and the cultural uh, dimension of Ottoman cuisine is highlighted in that on the one hand, Ottoman cuisine is presented as a thoroughly hybrid cuisine, thriving on contributions from the empire's various ethno-religious communities. But on the other hand, uh, in the 19th century, these communities were torn apart by war, genocide, and the emerging ideology of nationalism, but the cuisine survived, going on to become perhaps the most influential aspect of Ottoman culture that is still alive today. So, on the one hand, cuisine seems to be kind of a focal point of national and maybe via national, even personal identity, right? But on the mm -hmm. other hand, cuisine is incredibly porous and permeable and intercultural influences abound. So, could you speak a little bit to this tension in cuisine between representing cultural identity and transcending it? Yes, I mean, I have to say this is one of my favorites. Um, sort of subjects that, have, that that unintentionally seem to crop up from my book 
it is so interesting because, as you say, it is this wonderful idea of of uh, cuisine and the culture of cuisine being porous, and and that porous aspect of it abuts all, all the issues that surround immigration. And I think actually that Great Britain um, is a is an acute example of this. It's probably the best example in the world of this because. If you go to any British provincial town today, COVID-19 aside, you see um, on either side of the high street cuisines represented from around the world, from Nepal to Bangladesh, to from Japan to Beijing, from Paris to um, Milan, Milan to you know Madrid and, and, and beyond. And if you were to judge a country like Britain, okay, on on its cuisine, you would have to say, given the fact that there is there's such an array of different food from around the world, you must embrace immigrant culture like no other country. But yet we know that there is also and has been historically a, 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 a section of society of Britain that has a, you know, that's more is that. that that displays anti-immigrant feelings. And some people say that the Brexit argument sort of exacerbates and shows that. So I think that's a very interesting thing. And I write in the book that, you know, there are nations around the world that um, are feel negative about the immigrants, but then they suddenly seem to forget that negativity when they lap up the wonderful food that they bring. So then linked with that, you've also got this very thorny subject of cultural appropriation where um, you know people representing cuisines of different nations and different cultures represent those cuisines and steal them some may say and then appropriate them and then misappropriate them and tweak them to change and to, to change them to suit the palates of the country and we see this in America with um, sort of Mexican cuisine, the bastardization of the of tacos, mm -hmm. but then you see, in fact, even in the you know there are examples in the United States of Mexican immigrants themselves doing it, Italian immigrants themselves doing it, bastardizing their own cuisines to satisfy the more simpler palates of their fellow countrymen in those countries in which they have settled. Mm -hmm. So sometimes the bastardization of food can be blamed on the immigrants who knew about them but changed them in order to make money. So it's a very complicated scenario. Um, and um, but, but I suppose through what the overriding thing that comes out of this is it doesn't that the battles to produce food and create food, there's one happy ending and that is the consumer who suddenly has all this choice. But then there's also always the opportunity for second or third generation, immigrant or someone from a different culture to see foods and say, well, look, actually, I don't like that. I want to come. I want to explore the authenticity and to actually create food that I think more represents that original culture. And you see it, for example, Atul Kocha, great Indian chef, now in his new restaurant in Mayfair in London, Kanishka, celebrating the acute regional differences in food in, in Indian cuisine, which again, um, is a great contrast to the sort of amorphous um, Bangladeshi offering that in 
Indian restaurants became, you know, came to do in the 1970s, 80s and beyond. So every time that a cuisine is, is changed for whatever reason, it always gives someone else the opportunity to do the opposite, right. to delve deeper, deeper and create something more authentic. So it's a constantly um, revolving situation where there's always new energy and people are always trying to say, well, I, I want to do something better. I want to rebel against that. I want to reclaim my heritage. I want to demonstrate an authentic version of that heritage. And cuisine enables you to do this. You can do all of this. And it's not just a talking shop because it's also an eating shop. So you have these conversations, these arguments, but at the end of the day, yippee, there's some decent grub for us to eat. And so <laughs> people who have no interest in, people who have absolutely no interest in the subject end up still being the winners and they play their part in it because they can eat the results of this cultural debate. Absolutely. And I mean, like, in, in a sense, uh, the reason that people can do this, the reason that people can pull cuisine in all of these different directions, and the reason that, you know, you can still, uh, the fact that people who might be against something like immigration would still be able to go out and enjoy uh, uh, the food produced by cultural exchange uh, is the fact... That exactly. So, yeah. because you can, let me just say, because, yeah, sure. yeah. You know, if you're a racist, okay, if you are, if you don't like, you know, Indians for some reason, if you're racist, that doesn't stop you going and eating their food, Absolutely. you know, so you can hate their culture, but, but you're allowed to eat yeah. the food of their culture, the greatest manifestation of that culture shows how tolerant we are right so food in a way uh, manages to transgress uh, uh, boundaries that other forms of cultural expression uh, that that might be nas national or regional in origin don't actually uh, manage yes. in, in transcending in that sense food is innocuous but also subversive in the way that it brings together <laughs> brings together yeah. these different cultures and exposes them to each other uh, the the uh, i think that's 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 very well argued on your part um, and this has something to do with the fact that food uh, cuisine ultimately uh, no matter how many sort of uh, you know uh, uh, michelin starred restaurants or, or 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 sort of original celebrated star chefs we might have remains a communal affair remains in a sense a folkloric affair where it, it can be passed on it can be it can be reproduced it can be meddled with and it can be it can be manipulated by anybody who who uh, who chooses to to tune in to the cultural discourse uh, uh, surrounding a specific kind of cuisine and this cultural discourse kind of brings me back full circle uh, to what you were saying at the at the beginning at the very beginning of our interview where you mentioned you know, the concept of hospitality. And I want to come back to that in closing off the interview because that is a very, very interesting concept for me. You do discuss, I mean, you also, you already mentioned how uh, hospitality in the Roman Empire had a legal and sacred uh, uh, nature or position standing. You also recount how the 14th century world traveler, Ibn Battuta, probably rarely had to pay for a meal uh, during his travels of 32 years. Well, indeed, as I, as I, as I was just saying, for for most of world history, cuisine was a folkloric, communal, and freely shared uh, cultural practice. But uh, in your book, you also describe how, especially from the 19th century onwards, cuisine has entered a process of professionalization and uh, commodification, with a chef rebranded as an individual creative genius, and food itself becoming another product uh, to be sold. Uh, so do you think that cuisine is in some way decoupling itself 
from values uh, such as community and hospitality and uh, uh, asked in the opposite direction do you think that such values as hospitality which sound very very nice in an abstract sense do you think they can even be sustained in a society without uh, 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 actual manifestations factual uh, uh, tangible manifestations such as freely shared food well I certainly think it's true that it's much harder today to travel the world without um, having to pay for food. Um, you know, relatively recently, there was a great writer called Paddy Lee Fermel, and he traveled right across uh, Europe, Eastern Europe, um, and he was fed because he entertained on his way. He stayed with people. Um, he sang for his supper, literally, um, as so many people have done over the centuries. His conversation, his ability to pick up languages, his ability to connect and, and talk and entertain meant that he was fed uh, for free wherever he traveled. And this was, a, this was commonplace historically, as you touched upon. Historically, Ibn Battuta, the great Muslim scholar, traveled through the Ottoman Empire and like so many others could travel and stay normally in religious institutions where you weren't a you didn't have to beg for food if you were a traveler people would give you shelter and give you food and they might give you cakes and 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 sweets to go on your journey and, and wish you well but as as cuisine has become more sophisticated, and as you say, as it's become this product, as chefs have become this um, sort of celebrated entity, so the so hospitality has gone from being something that is freely given, gratefully accepted, to something that is commercialized. So the very meaning of hospitality becomes uh, obscured, divorced from its original meaning, which is giving of 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 free you know when someone's hospitable in the home that's absolutely it you look after them and you feed them the most important thing hospitality now when we talk about it is an industry it's a it's an enormous business so has the whole concept of hospitality and it's written its original meaning been destroyed by this concept of food becoming such a globalized phenomenon in a business and, and something that so many people go into and I think the answer probably has to be yes um, because I don't think it's you know if you turn up as a stranger and knock on someone's door they call the police they don't <laughs> welcome you in and feed you we are taught now to be um, you know afraid and wary of strangers not to welcome strangers in you know, we have electric gates, we have locks on our doors. Um, we are very worried if people we don't know turn up in COVID, even if our grandmother turns up, we can't let her in. So, you know, that has exacerbated the idea of, you know, hospitality. Um, it now kills you uh, because you can't rub shoulders to people. So the whole so the latest crisis has has killed the concept even further in that welcoming a stranger, A, is dangerous, and B, it could kill you. So we are in, a, in an extraordinary place today. And 
the giving and receiving of free gifts and drinks and food is is now a a, a yes i have no idea i hope so because it all comes down to eventually the the goodwill of the human spirit um and we live by necessity and creativity right well, I mean, uh, you know, uh, that is uh, so. Let's go from this and become givers. I, I, I think, uh, I think that is a, I think that is a very, very important message uh, uh, to give, in fact, or to uh, a kind of a, a reminder uh, to put in front of people. I mean, I just remember yesterday, uh, uh, our, our institute is, uh, is 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 in a partnership with a, with an anglophone bookstore here in uh, here in Paris, the Red Wheelbarrow, and I was going there to visit the bookstore, and I had just cooked something at home, like a a basic Turkish dish at home and I decided to take some of it with me uh, so that the people at the bookstore could read, uh, could eat it and just take a little break and eat it and just the the joy of actually seeing those people come together and commune and everybody take a little bit of that food and, and, and just, just the as the cook as the person who was preparing that food to, to, to see the sort of community and the joy that was engendered by the offering free offering of course and by the sharing of that food is is a feeling that i can only recommend to people that is definitely something that uh, people should try out hospitality is not just something that is nice for the recipient but hospitality is actually something that can be very very um, edifying for the person who provides it as well yes yes exactly and and unfortunately, bureaucracy means that when people try and hand out pots of jam, um, that if it's not, you know, it being industrially made, that, uh, you know, you should deny it because, it, again, that might kill you. So bureaucracy and disease um, and greed and commerciality have all sort of come together in a perfect storm. But as you say, you know, the old, the old saying is it's, it is better to give than to receive. And I think that people should think about that. But I will would say that on the con contrary to all of this so many restaurants particularly in the uk the chefs have been giving they've been cooking for key workers in our national health service and they've not been doing this for money so there's been a lot of goodwill there's been a lot of community spirit that's also come out of covid and much of that has been about providing food and caring so bearing that in mind no, there is a bit of hope. Yes, and I think I think we can count on the fact that the that the preparation of food and the communal consumption of food is not going to go anywhere. These are going to stay as central tenets of human culture and human societies. So, in one way or an, an, or another, I I have no doubt that we'll always find our way back to the idea of a communal sharing of food uh, with those close to us and with those who are in need. So, William, uh, thank you very very much for sharing your thoughts with us today thank you so much and uh, if anyone feels like um, further exploration my book the restaurant a history of eating out is available through all book good bookshops but i've really enjoyed talking to you and uh, and i really enjoyed examining some of these cultural influences that have that have emerged some of them un unexpectedly in my journey as i've written about this story so Thank you so much for your interest. And this is a discussion that we could, we could keep going on. So thank, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it. It's, it's absolutely a discussion that we could keep having. And once uh, circumstances permit, and if and when you travel to Paris, I hope that you will also be, uh, uh, be with us and uh, we will get to meet you face to face and hopefully maybe also do perhaps a book talk or a guest lecture for the Paris Institute over here.
Um, no. well, anything to try your anything to try your uh, your Turkish treats? Oh, yes, <laughs> absolutely. That's that that's that will absolutely be a part of it. So that brings us to the end of another uh, Picture Voices. Our live events, courses, and workshops will start up again as soon as health conditions permit. And you've heard uh, in return for a taste of my Turkish cuisine, William Sitwell uh, might be persuaded to talk for us as well in person. So we can't wait to uh, get to see all of you all members of the picked community uh, in person again in the meantime uh, thank you all for tuning in and we hope to challenge you with another picked podcast very soon <laughs>